on the Talkback Show, on the radio, or whatever audiovisual device you choose to use. Welcome to the GBC Podcast, where we talk about the Packers and our hometown of Green Bay. This is episode 74, created on February 14th, 2024. I'm John. I'm in Appleton, Wisconsin. Along with me, Jeff in Minnesota and Neil out on the East Coast. Say hello, gentlemen, and tell us what you're drinking. We are now in the long, dark NFL winter that calls for a winter beer. So I am having the Eredita Humble Oatmeal Stout. And I am drinking tonight, again, from Boulevard Brewing Company from Kansas City, celebrating the Kansas City win, the Vietnamese coffee-inspired Imperial Porter. And you guys, it's Valentine's Day, so I'm having a screaming orgasm. And I really hope... I really hope my mother was not paying attention during that part. You can find us on YouTube and Twitter at Green Bay Chat and Facebook at the GBC Podcast, Green Bay Chat. Just the audio is available on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify by searching for Green Bay Chat. Just a few topics tonight, but the big one, Super Bowl 58, we'll talk about that game. And the Hall of Fame class for 2024 has been announced. We'll look at that as well as give a bit of a free agency preview because it is that time of year where real football has ended for about six months. Jeff, the important stuff first. How about those commercials? I was underwhelmed, John. Let's move on. I, I think I was as well. Halftime show, okay for you? I'm trying to pick out who was who was actually kind of funny <laughs> in a room of 20-somethings. It's, it's um, a sign of us getting older, Jeff, and the the, the music getting younger, right? Yeah, well, uh, even the, some of the 20-somethings didn't know who some of the people were, so I didn't feel so bad. You, like, you needed that generation in the middle in your audience. You just didn't have it. As a performance, though, not bad. I enjoyed it. It was good. Commercials, like you said, eh, underwhelming. But the game, Neil, that's what we were there for. Chiefs win 25-22, and it was our friend Charles who predicted the score right here. He, he stumbled through it, but he insisted it was going to be a weird score. Jeff, you agreed it was going to be a weird score, too, but he nailed it. 25-22, he took his Chiefs to win. Neil, you had the Chiefs on this one as well. You want to just get it out of the way? Give me the old heart hands, and there we go. Chiefs. <laughs> I, and I was very much cheering for the Chiefs hardcore in this game. I was kind of surprised by how intense my feelings were during the game. It was not quite like it was a Packers game, but I was very much cheering against San Francisco since San Francisco has done us wrong for so many years. And I am very much on the Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey bandwagons. And that was a really enjoyable game in the end, but for long periods of that game, it did not look good for Kansas city. It didn't look good for anybody. There wasn't a lot of scoring. And, you know, you, 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 you talk about the start of the game and San Francisco did exactly what they needed to do. They ran the ball and they attacked the middle of the Kansas City defense. Christian McCaffrey, you know, looked like he was well on his way to dominating the game, being the game MVP, and then, bam, fumbles the ball. And that just kind of was the story of the night. San Francisco, they knew what they needed to do. They just couldn't put it together. Jeff, you and I took San Francisco. They did have the lead for a bit, right? Overall, kind of the, the blowout games of the 80s, those are long gone. I mean, most yeah. of the recent Super Bowls have been competitive, which has been exciting, you know, for a viewer that, in, you know, I didn't really, I picked San Francisco, but I didn't really care one way or the other, you know, so I don't know, Neil, is it satisfying 
as you're rooting against them to see them lose in the way they did. I, I absolutely adored that game. That was a perfect game as far as both <laughs> being pro Kansas city, but especially being anti San Francisco, but going back to that beginning part of the game, it started off almost as badly as you could have imagined it for Kansas city. Their offense could not move the ball at all. Multiple three and outs. They had one first down in the entire first quarter and in that first quarter, Kansas City had 16 total yards of offense. Patrick Mahomes had five net yards passing in the first quarter. And meanwhile, on the other side, their renowned defense wasn't doing anything. San Francisco seemingly could do whatever it wanted in that first quarter. They had 125 yards of offense in the first quarter. You think, this is going to be a blowout and a blowout in a way that's just going to have me depressed the whole <laughs> next week. And thankfully it turned around eventually but that was a really tough start if you're cheering against san francisco or for kansas city it was weird because overall kansas city made it into the red zone six times and only scored you know the two touchdowns whereas san francisco was one for two in the red zone you, you know like you said they controlled the ball a lot especially in the first half but just, you know, between the turnovers and they just really couldn't put it together. So it looks like they, they were just really struggling for focus. So I don't know if that's like a coaching piece or they just, they were prepared to play, but they weren't sharp. Well, they started out sharp. I, I, I'm going to disagree with that. It's like they started out so well and then they didn't know how to deal with the prosperity of their defense playing well and their offense playing well. And again, looking at Brock Purdy, first quarter, Brock Purdy was eight of 10 for 105 yards. McCaffrey rushing and receiving had 42 yards in that first quarter. They were really on top of it. They were stopping Kansas City. I don't understand what happens to a team that starts out in such a dominating fashion, other than scoring, but starts out in such a dominating fashion and then just can't do anything like that the entire rest of the game. I think the big spot though, clearly, Jeff, the asshats. It's a 13-10 game. San Francisco scores the touchdown. They get the six. It's 16-13. If they go up 17-13, to Neil's point, they really are leading. They really are dominating this game because it's a four-point game instead of a three-point game. It changes the scope of what Kansas City has to do down the stretch. So, Neil, you're right. The Niners did dominate throughout. It's just a matter of, A, not putting the points on the board when they needed to, and then when they had the opportunity botching it there, that's kind of the big picture of the game. Right. Although if you look at the overall statistics of the game, the first quarter is the only quarter that San Francisco dominated from a statistical perspective. Every other quarter, Kansas City won fairly handily by the overall numbers going even into the second quarter. It was 141 yards for Kansas City to only 64 for San Francisco. The difference is, though, at halftime, it was a 10-3 San Francisco lead, in part because of problems with Kansas City converting and this, this issue of not converting in the red zone overall in the game. Although, to be fair, in the first half, San Francisco was actually 0 of 0 in the red zones, but Kansas City was 0 of 2 in the red zone, and it's the inability to convert. But Charles talked about this last week. He specifically said this is a team that doesn't always get out of its way, and it doesn't always convert where you expect it to convert. But the difference is they have Harrison Butker, the best kicker in the NFL. And in the end, that was the biggest difference in the game, other than Patrick Mahomes. The other thing is that Kansas City could stay on the field. That was the other thing, especially in the third and fourth quarters. 
where uh, San Francisco just, they were three of 12 on third down. That's awful, right? 25%, whereas Kansas City was nine of 19. So they, again, a big part of this was Patrick Mahomes, you, you could argue as well. Like, been there, done that. Whereas, you know, I think Brock Purdy, for as well as he played, certainly in, in portions of the game, he just either was play calling or just execution or, you know, a, a, the defensive line for Kansas City really got to him as well. The blitzing and things like that really had him shaken up, especially as the game wore on. And therefore, they just they didn't look as sharp. Well, let's go to Brock Purdy's number. So I, I told you, 8 of 10 for 105 in the first quarter. In the second quarter, Brock Purdy was only 2 of 5 for 18 yards with a sack thrown in. So only 14 net yards passing in the second quarter. And in the third quarter, he was arguably worse because he threw 10 times, only completed four for 25 yards. That is, in the second and third quarters combined, Brock Purdy was only 6 of 15 for 43 yards. That's not going to get it done. And he gets the touchdown pass taken away from him. Someone else gets the touchdown yeah. pass. And and to be fair, that was all Christian McCaffrey on that pass. Jennings just lobbed it across field, and McCaffrey took care of it from there. The other interesting point on this, Neil, in the three Super Bowl victories over the last five seasons for Kansas City, each time they overcome a 10-0 deficit. Now, this time it's 10-0 early. When it's early like that in the second quarter, it feels surmountable as opposed to the game where they were down 20 to 10 later in the game against Philadelphia, right? Right. But thinking about the standpoint for somebody who was clearly cheering for Kansas City, there were so many points where if San Francisco makes a conversion, this game could have gotten out of control really quickly. All throughout the game, there were these multiple opportunities where if San Francisco gets a conversion, they score a touchdown, they stop Kansas City, this becomes a two-score game. And yes, the Kansas City offense made a difference, but the San Francisco offense and defense also made a difference in a negative way as far as preventing that from happening. And that obviously is the difference in the game is that they San Francisco had their opportunities. If they convert on the, their opportunities, Patrick Mahomes is going to have to perform at a far higher level than he already did in order to win that game. Well, Neil, ultimately he does perform in this game he's the mvp right and he started performing after that first quarter it turned around entirely second quarter eight of 10 114 yards third quarter 7 11 56 yards that was a down quarter but in the second half and overtime patrick holmes with over 200 yards of passing 23 completions and oh by the way second half and overtime he had seven rushes for 59 yards and arguably Patrick Mahomes ability to convert with his legs is what really made the difference as far as a number of those conversions were concerned where the receivers weren't getting open they were being covered by that stout San Francisco defense but Mahomes saw an opening and he took advantage of those openings there were at least two of those runs that I feel they looked like they were pass plays but I feel like they were designed runs like let's sell the pass because of their coverage just plan on pulling that ball in and running it and they came at key moments too where they needed the yardage gets him upfield down the middle and he really again shows that leadership shows that ability to see the field and know where everybody is so that that play does work that way if it is a planned run and conversely though the fact that he had the only interception in the game was sort of mm. that almost worked to his advantage because I, I think it probably told him all right pump the brakes here a little bit, you know, don't do that again. Don't lose the game because later in the game, it looked like he was going to throw the ball far downfield. He was winding up to throw 
and then ended up doing a check down, which was really key in that case, because if he chucks it up, if he gets an interception, the outcome is going perhaps could be different as well. So, you know, even though he had the only interception of the game, I think it really worked to his advantage in terms of calming him down almost in a weird way and getting him focused. What are you laughing at, Neil? You're you're right. I, I agree with you entirely. And it's just sort of like Patrick, we talked about this earlier, like Patrick Mahomes seems like he needs extra challenges. Just he needs to add a, have a few added degrees of difficulty in order to get him to perform at his very best. And obviously he did in the latter half of that game. But even in that third quarter, it was looking not so great for Kansas City for a long time. And they had a couple of three and outs. Kansas City had generally really poor conversion on offense in that third quarter. They were only one of five on third downs in that third quarter. They finished a three and out. And at this point, it'd been a clean game as far as special teams. I'd been joking to John and Jeff that it's just remarkable to watch a game in which the special teams are actually competent, in which you just have the expectation that the special teams are going to do their job. Kansas City is a three and out late in the third quarter. They punt. It was right after I made that comment. And, well, Asshat showed up and they started showing up in spades at that point. I mean, Neil, that was the kiss of death. You like, that was almost like the announcer jinx. I mean, seriously, <laughs> that was like uncanny. When you when you texted that, and like you said, right after that, the wheels fell off, right? That's what all the special teams gaffes basically happened. You know, the, the punt, you rarely see an up back like that get hit because everybody knows to get the hell away from the ball when it's bouncing around and it hit them, you know, right in the foot. And then rather than jumping on the ball, you know, so we had sort of the muff that wasn't the muff. Why didn't he just jump on the ball to recover it? Why did he try well, to score? Right? That's the big question, isn't it? That's You talk about that as, as football fans, and, and everybody starts playing football in, you know, peewee league, high school, things like that, and we're all taught. That ball's on the jump, ground, just jump, jump on, on the it. ball. <laughs> yep. But now you're talking about guys that – have made their living on being the hands guy, you know, picking up the ball, doing something with it, making something out of nothing, thinking that you can make something out of nothing and just hoping for the best. And it's, a, I think it's at that level, it's a different mindset um, that you see that ball. I think I can pick this up and get a few extra yards because they want to make that play. And some guys do that. Some guys do have the mindset still jump on the ball, but you're right, Jeff. I mean, you look at it, watching it on TV and as a fan, it is frustrating as hell jump on the ball well, just, just fall on it Be done right it. exactly but that's why the genius of football right the shape mm -hmm. you never know where the heck that thing is going <laughs> it's it's you don't get a true bounce rarely is it going to come bouncing right to you so that's you know that obviously adds to the intrigue but yeah you know that was a huge and the turning point in the game well let's just look at kansas city in that third quarter so they're down 10-3 at halftime Start out with the interception on the first drive for Kansas City. Three and out punt. Field goal on a long drive, but they're still down 10-6. San Francisco, then they have this three and out before this punt. They have the potential of going down 17-6 if San Francisco can bring a drive together. Instead, one play drive for a touchdown after the muff, and Kansas City has a three-point lead rather than at an 11-point deficit. And yeah. you talk about the score at that point, right? It's 10-3 at halftime. And 10 minutes of regulation later, well, 13 minutes of regulation later, we're bored. It's 10-6. It's like, come on, let's get something happening here. And you're right. Okay, Kansas City is punting because they can't do anything with it. 
we have the possibility that San Francisco can make a big play and get, and now bam, boy, did how the turntables, as Michael Scott would say, <laughs> and it, it's 13, 10, and it is a different complexion to this ball game going into the fourth quarter. After that muff punt, every other drive by both teams resulted in a score other than the kneel down at the end of regulation. It's like the offenses both came alive. It's like, Oh shit, this game is reaching crunch time. <laughs> And we're going to pull out all the stops and figure out how to win this game. And yes, from that point, it was an incredible game of football, despite uh, being perhaps not fully satisfying to that point. It's almost like they, they were both playing cat and mouse through the first two and a half quarters, but they were both the cat or they were both the mouse, whichever way you want to look <laughs> at that analogy. And they said, well, we're just going to, we're going to see what they're, we're going to see what they're doing. We're going to see how they react to us. so We can pour it on in the fourth quarter. And it, it kind of felt like both teams were doing that because it was a pretty, other than the the, the trick play there with, with Juwan Jennings, it seemed like a pretty basic play calling, pretty generic. Yeah. There was nothing flashy about it other than, you know, McCaffrey with a head of steam going through guys. Yeah, they played, like you said, very close to the vest, very yeah. trying to feel, feel each other out or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, they got to a point where they're just like, F it, let's just, you know, let's have at it. So Neil... What were your thoughts then? So Kansas City goes up on a goofy play. So they take the lead for the first time in the game. It, with San an MBS Francisco... touchdown after that. Let's let's give MBS <laughs> yeah. his credit here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, so San Francisco says, okay, we're, we're not going to roll over. They come back. They score the touchdown. And so how and are they, you and they, and they just drove down the field. I mean, that was just yeah. so disconcerting. Like as somebody cheering for Kansas City, that first half was just like, I thought, what, you know, what happened to that Kansas City's vaunted defense? They were just run over by San Francisco the first few drives. And then we get into this point where San Francisco is now behind. And now San Francisco runs right over that Kansas City defense once again. They score a touchdown. It's like, oh, shit. Now we're going to be down four points. And if this just goes back and forth like this, <laughs> Kansas City's going to lose. If it's just an all offensive track meet. And well, then something happened. So with the missed extra point, then the only thing that would have made it better would have been a doink, right? I mean, just like a really loud. And technically, it was it was a doink. It was a different kind of doink. It was a thud. <laughs> but you uh, know, the other sp- thing about that that's interesting. Remember, on the extra point, that ball is live. The yeah. the the defense could have picked that up and run it back the other direction for two, mm-hmm. and it kind of felt like some of the guys on the on the field knew it was a live ball and some guys were like okay blocked i'm walking home and it went towards the sideline and fortunately there was someone over there for san francisco to make a tackle but boy kansas city looked like they were ready to jump on it and run it down they just seemed at down the stretch like the better coached better prepared team yeah at this point it's a three-point football game because of the missed extra point and kansas city takes the ball and they move all the way down to the san francisco three-yard line on that next drive at the time I had this concern that that missed extra point caused Andy Reed to play conservatively as they got down deep into the red zone. And it's like, okay, we need to get a field goal rather than thinking we need to get a touchdown. If that's a four point game, they're really aggressive going after the touchdown in that circumstance. But instead they got first single at the San Francisco four and basically did nothing over the next three plays, kick the field goal to make it a tie game. And at that point, as somebody cheering for Kansas City, I was really concerned again that they had had a missed opportunity to get that far down and not score the touchdown, to not take the lead, was putting the ball back into San Francisco's court. 
I agree, Neil. It's like they they just they were go 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 go. Okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna take our foot off the gas or whatever you want to call it. No, I was thinking the same thing during the game. It was like, well, that was really weird play calling. You know, as they got right at the end zone, it's they just yeah they they settled for the field goal as opposed to San Francisco on their next drive where they never really got that close. And unlike the missed extra point. Moody once again makes a really big kick with a 52 yard or 53 yard field goal in order to take the lead for San Francisco. And I think we do have to give a shout out to both kickers for the field goals in the game, two different Super Bowl records for the longest kick in Super Bowl history, 56 yards and then 57 yards with, with Butker and to make two field goals over 50 yards in a game, I think at least partly erases the missed extra point. You know, to back up a minute, though, when Kansas City does kick the field goal to tie it at 16, there's 549 remaining in the contest. It doesn't, at that point, it didn't feel like a do or die, like you had to go for it on fourth down. But think about the complexion of the game. If they do go for it on fourth down to try to score and they fail, and there's 549 roughly remaining in the contest, San Francisco has the ball, they can milk that clock down. And with a three-point lead, it's easier for them to milk it down. I'm of the opinion, put the points on the board. As I was watching it, I was thinking, put the points on the board. I'm glad that they didn't go Dan Campbell on this one. Uh, <laughs> I, I was rooting for Kansas City in this play. Make it interesting. Put the points on the board. Let's go for a tie here and see what happens in the last five minutes. Although they almost were bit on their asses because of that, because San Francisco had such a methodical drive the next drive, they got down to a third and five at the Kansas City 35 with 153 left in the game. If they convert that third down, they can kick the game-winning kick. Patrick Mahomes never gets the ball back. So right. there was a real risk in not scoring that touchdown there. And it was really just one third down conversion away from San Francisco winning the game without Patrick Mahomes having a chance to lead that comeback that he did at the end of the fourth quarter. It's on the Kansas City defense there. And you know that the Kansas City defense was not playing their best game. And that was evidence when they had their team meeting on the sidelines in the second quarter. And a lot really rested on Steve Spagnuolo's shoulders to keep them alive in that final drive. You're right. All it took was a third down conversion. But to Kansas City's credit, San Francisco did not get it. And at that point, it just was Patrick Mahomes murdering the other team and doing yeah. what Patrick Mahomes always does. He had a long drive, and uh, I would say there was there were some minor clock management issues. If they had <laughs> one more timeout, they probably could have scored the touchdown to win the game. But nonetheless, they got close enough, and Patrick Mahomes brought them in a position where it was an easy Harrison Butker field goal to take this game to overtime. But even looking at that point, it's a minute 57 remaining in the contest. San Francisco's defense only needs to hold that three-point lead from minute 57. And this is a team that had one of the best defenses in the league this year. I keep thinking about the Dre Greenlaw injury, the freak injury. I'm sure our, our friend Melissa, who was on last week, probably was beside herself. I hope somebody yeah. was there to hold her at that moment. <laughs> but just... For them to not really be able to recover from that and why this great defense did not do what it needed to do in the last minute 50 roughly in the game. It was very Barry-esque, dare I say. Yeah. <laughs> it was the the bend and sort of break. I mean, 
they didn't give up the touchdown. But I think that Drake Greenlaw injury, I was going to mention this earlier, that was super freaky for starters. Just what a freak accident. But really had to be so demoralizing for San Francisco, especially on the defensive side, especially just simply because, you know, the, the tandem was, they're just, they were so good and so dominant. And suddenly they, they lose one of their best players on defense. And so it just, it changed things quite a bit. I mean, in the game against us, right? Their ability to control the middle of the field yes. is what in the end was the biggest problem for us as an offense. And they were controlling the middle of the field. I mean, I think Patrick Mahomes' stats in the first quarter say that part of, partly, but also Travis Kelsey had one total receiving yard in the entire first half. And that is a tribute to how well that defense was playing, how well that defense was controlling the field. In, until the injury. And then, like I said, things shifted around. And, it, you know, I mean, they almost overcame. But I want to go back just briefly to that third down play, you know, um, in the fourth quarter where it was an all-out blitz by the Kansas City defense. I mean, can you imagine having the balls to dial that up? And, I mean, it worked, clearly. I mean, it worked to perfection and, and got exactly the outcome that was needed. But holy cows. I mean, <laughs> wow, what what a play. Right, because that, and, that could have easily been a touchdown, except they right. wouldn't have even taken the touchdown. It was just catch it fall down, you're going to run out the clock, kick a field goal to win the game at the end. Yeah, the yeah. all-out blitz by Spagnola was wow. unbelievable. <laughs> Here's a question for you. Game ends 1919, right? We go into overtime. At this point, let's say, hypothetically, it's a really benign overtime, but Kansas City wins with a field goal 22-19. to 19. At that point, is Harrison Butker the MVP of that game? Hmm. Jeez, that's a thought-provoking <laughs> question, John. No, no, because kickers are never the MVP, John. Well, had he scored, it would have been 16 points on the game. Had he had 16 of the 22 points, you'd have a hard time arguing that. Conversely, if San Francisco had won that game 22 to 19, Kansas City wasn't able to get across the board to score, say San Francisco wins. Is Jake Moody your MVP? With the blocked extra point, probably not. Yeah. But who is if San Francisco wins, who is the MVP? Juwan Jennings, Christian McCaffrey. It's got to be McCaffrey. McCaffrey had 160 yards total right. from scrimmage. He was he was oh. everywhere, and when they were moving, it was McCaffrey that was moving them. But what really happens is Patrick Mahomes is the MVP, and it's clearly that two-minute drill drive to end the game. What about that final <laughs> drive in overtime and how Patrick Mahomes took care of his team he showed why he's the mvp he showed why he's certainly one of the greatest of all times it was just the awareness of the moment and doing all of the things that he needed to do and that was really the situation throughout but especially at the end of the game when the game mattered most it's like okay this is my team this is i, I think when people talk about the leader on the field Johnny Unitas is still the player that people think about most as somebody who, when the game matters the most, he's just going to take the whole team on his shoulders and win the game. And obviously you've had people like Montana who've done things like that, but Patrick Mahomes is in that Unitas and Montana discussion because of how he always elevates his game at the most important moments in the game. But Neil, yes, Mahomes shows why he is the MVP. Same overtime, San Francisco has a relatively decent drive. But I think it's Brock Purdy who shows the inexperience, a second-year player. This is a guy that 
People aren't sure the 49ers are sold on him yet. We even asked Melissa that question last week, if he is the guy. I felt they should have relied more on McCaffrey like they did to start off the game. But something just happens with San Francisco that they can't convert or get the ball down or do what they wanted to do. And they even had some help on some spurious penalty calls as well. Let's just look at Brock Purdy's numbers. If you consider the third quarter, fourth quarter, and overtime, so three quarters of football, Brock Purdy over those final three quarters was only 13 of 23 for only 122 yards. Mahomes had almost 100 more yards of passing during that time. Mahomes had an additional touchdown in addition to the running components. Overall, in those final three quarters, so the, the second half plus overtime, Kansas City had 298 yards of offense to only 193 yards of offense for San Francisco. San Francisco played well. Those aren't terrible numbers. It's just that Kansas City was that much better. They knew what they had to do. They'd been there before. They had enough talent. They had, they had Patrick Mahomes, most importantly, and they were able to get the job done. So do you think a tactical error was made when San Francisco won the toss and took the ball? That's a tough question. I was thinking about that too, because the overtime rules in the postseason allows both teams to get the ball. And it's kind of like the college overtime, right? You, We know both teams get the ball and they're going to play from the 25. And the question is, do you want to be the team to have the ball second? Because if the other team scores, then you know what you have to do. I think a lot of it's, it's psychological too. If you can go downfield and you can score, and now all you have to do is stop the other team, their offense that hasn't been on the field for, because San Francisco ate up seven and a half minutes in that overtime. Yeah. Think about how much real time elapsed that Mahomes and the offense is sitting off of the field. San Francisco should have been able to capitalize on that. And it's surprising that they didn't, even though they got the field goal, they should have been able to capitalize on that and hold that lead with that amount of time having elapsed. I get the philosophy. I, I don't have a problem. And so I think it just depends on what the outcome is. If San Francisco scores the touchdown, it was the right call. If they kick a field goal, <laughs> it was the wrong call. And unfortunately, they only got the field goal. And then Patrick Mahomes has essentially four downs in every drive. And he's just got to at least get them into field goal range, but then can keep going for the touchdown. But if San Francisco scores, scores the touchdown, John, you're right. All the pressure then is on Kansas City. They need to go down and score the touchdown in order to win. And yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I, I don't think it's as clear cut as some commentators are making out to be. The other speculation I heard on that is San Francisco thinking they'll get the ball first, Kansas City will make a stop. And then with Kansas City as the ball, San Francisco makes a stop. Both teams have had a chance to have possession. Now, first team scores, it's done. And you can get the ball and you can do what you want to do. And it comes back to that concept of both teams playing cat and mouse, but they were both trying to be the mouse. <laughs> because of the way this game started, I have a feeling that's what San Francisco was thinking, that they were going to get stopped, they were going to put a stop on, and then score and win. So it, it, it right. And, and, yeah, and like the, having an advantage of one possession over the other team is a big deal. So, right. yeah, that's that's another tactical choice that I think made sense. And that's why I just don't have the same level of criticism that some people are very loudly yeah, making. Right. The, all, all the all the uh, analytics nerds and the cybermetrics, they're going to debate this one all offseason. They're going to they're going to run the numbers on that. That's fine. Let them figure it out. They're going to that's why they have these charts of when to go for it on fourth down and what to do in certain situations. It changes the scope of the game. It makes things interesting and entertaining for the fans. And this game was definitely an entertaining Super Bowl. Jeff, like you said, we think of back in the 80s when the AFC just couldn't hold their water. 
all the blowouts. What was it, 11, 12 years in a row that the NFC dominated? It's nice to see good even games, even though, yeah, okay, it's been Kansas City three out of the last five to win. Yeah. No, evenly matched. And obviously for the, the overall Super Bowl viewership numbers, things like that, and just, you know, watching an entertaining game. Now, I may feel, I would feel very differently had the Packers been playing in this game. And yeah, <laughs> damn it, I want to blow out, right? <laughs> just, but yeah, it was extremely entertaining and just not caring one way or the other. It was, it was just, you know, refreshing and relaxing to watch. So how entertaining were the kickoffs, Jeff? So, well, with, with 128 as an ass hat aficionado, tell me about those kickoffs, Jeff. Well, there were no kick return yards by either team in the entire game, and there, there certainly were a number of kickoffs. So, there were at least on one occasion, you know, because they did have the everything, all the, the goalposts mic'd up, and all the extra cameras on those goalposts, they were hit at least once on a kickoff. And it looked like they were they were literally kicking through the uprights in Las Vegas. So I don't know if it was like there was extra oxygen and I don't something know what about the being deal in was. that dome, right? In that building. Yeah. Something because I mean you see it in Denver, it's more commonplace, but certainly not not in Vegas. And so I just I, I thought it was interesting because what it did though is it took the whole kick return component, penalties, you know, turnovers, whatever didn't exist in this game didn't exist there were no not for one team not for the so there was no because both kickers were so good i guess you know to your mvp talk that it didn't there was no opportunity even to return a kick i, I so saw at least i saw at least one kick that Keyshawn nixon might have returned but <laughs> <laughs> might have. he could have snagged it right at the back of the end zone and <laughs> yeah or so. But I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting component that that literally, and I don't know if this is something that, you know, has ever happened before, maybe, but, you know, whether in a game or certainly a Super Bowl, but it just, it literally took one component of the game completely off the table. An event that has the largest global audience through all media outlets since the moon landing. This was a huge game. Kansas City with the win. Neil, you picked Kansas City. Go ahead and gloat about it. Tell us some more. Great stuff about Kansas City statistics. As I said, Patrick Mahomes is just a joy to watch as far as quarterback is concerned. And the fact that in all three of his Super Bowl victories, he's come back from a 10-point deficit really speaks volumes. And when he's come back from those deficits, it has been him performing at the very best. So in Patrick Mahomes' Super Bowl wins, since he was trailing by 10 points or more, he was 50 of 67, a 75% completion percentage, 472 yards, six touchdowns, one interception, a 117.3 quarterback rating. He's really good when he's behind by 10 points in a Super Bowl and he needs to come back. When the entire team is on his shoulders, he performs at his very best. Second statistic about Patrick Mahomes being behind. So since 2019, Kansas City is five and one in the playoffs when trailing by 10 or more points, five and one. The wow. entire rest of the NFL in that time period, six and 48. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes by himself and the Chiefs by themselves have one fewer win than all the rest of the NFL combined against, again, 48 losses. And the defense is pretty good as well. Kansas City was a special defense as far as not allowing points on the season. If you look at team scoring defense in the Super Bowl era, uh, the team that has allowed the 
fewest games with the opponent scoring under 28 points. So games where the opponent scores under 28 points, the Kansas City Chiefs this year had 21 games in which the opponent scored under 28 points. The second best in the lead prior to this season was the 2000 Baltimore Ravens. They had 19. That was also matched by the 2002 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the 2005 Pittsburgh Steelers, and the 2010 Green Bay Packers. All of those teams had 19 games in which they allowed under 28 points. Kansas City went two more than that this year. A truly dominant defense. You talk about a team that does not get the full credit for its defense. Obviously, people recognize that 2000 Ravens team is one of the greatest defenses of all time. That 2010 Packers is at that same level. Obviously, there's a 17-game schedule now, but the Kansas City Chiefs bettered that by two. Here's something fun on that season in that same vein, Neil. In the postseason, San Francisco scores 22 points on Kansas City. Buffalo scored 24 points on Kansas City. During the regular season, nobody scored more than 21 points with the exception of the Green Bay Packers, who scored 27 points on a Sunday night in December at Lambeau Field. And we didn't even need overtime to do that. Uh, no. You know, if that Kansas City takes that to overtime, maybe we take that into the 30s in that game. So, yeah, Packers scored the most points on the Kansas City defense all season. We didn't win the Super Bowl. We're certainly thinking about it, though, but we certainly played the best team in the NFL this year and played them competitively. This has me really excited for next year. And as Super Bowl 58 finishes, closes out the season, we are getting ready for a new league year, so we'll have free agency. We have an NFL draft coming up. Then we get to training camp. Neil, you got to get ready for a 5K that you're going to run in training camp. And we have a Hall of Fame induction coming, what, about five and a half months away. The big news on the Hall of Fame inductees for the 2024 class is that two of them have played for the Green Bay Packers. One of them, Steve McMichael, best known for being a Chicago Bear. The other one, Julius Peppers, also played for the Bears, but played in Green Bay a total of 48 games. So here's the question. When we look at the Packers' ring of honor, all of those players up there played a majority of their career as Green Bay Packers. There are already five players who are in the Hall of Fame that played for the Packers, but their names are not up there. Defensive end Len Ford played 11 games for the Packers in 1958. Linebacker Ted Hendricks played 14 games for the Packers in 1974. Offensive guard Walt Kiesling played 18 games back in 1935-36. The interesting fact about Walt Kiesling, he is the only Hall of Famer to play for both the Packers and the Bears so far. Uh, the kicker, Jan Stenerud, 45 games for the Green Bay Packers over four seasons, 1980-83. That's the number I think we got a key on there, Neil. And safety, Emlyn Tunnel, 37 games, 59-61. So those five, Hall of Fame, not up on the ring. Of the players on the ring, it's Charles Woodson who played just 100 of his career 254 games in Green Bay. But his career... You have to say, was he a Hall of Famer before coming to Green Bay? Maybe, maybe not. But does being a defensive player of the year and winning a Super Bowl in Green Bay put him in the Hall? It does. His name is up on the ring. So now we look at these two players. Steve McMichael played a mere 16 games for Green Bay in 1994 out of 213 games. He's a bear. 
He's not going up on the ring. I get it. But Julius Peppers. Was Julius Peppers a Hall of Famer before coming to Green Bay? Or does his time in Green Bay, 48 games from 2014 to 2016, get him up on the ring? Like I said, at 45 games, Jan Stenerud is not there. Neil, at 48 games, did Julius Peppers get his name up top? No. Julius Peppers had 12 years for Carolina and for Chicago before he came to Green Bay. And I think your comparison with Charles Woodson is the correct comparison. Charles Woodson had a larger body of work and his numbers in Green Bay versus in Oakland are actually very similar. His total, you, you could make an argument that either component of his career pushed him most of the way towards a Hall of Fame career, and he just needed some component of that other teams in order to have that Hall of Fame career. Julius Peppers was never at that same level. Again, he was in his 13th, 14th, and 15th years in the league. Those are obviously good Packers teams. He had seven sacks for the 2014 Packers, uh, that season that ended with the loss to Seattle in the NFC Championship game. He had 10 and a half sacks in the 2015 season that the Packers were 10 and six, where we lost to Arizona in the playoffs. And then he had seven and a half sacks on the 2016 Packers team that ended up losing in Atlanta. Two of those three teams obviously made it to the NFC Championship game. Neither made it to the Super Bowl. He was certainly an important player on those teams. He had 25 sacks in the regular season. He had four and a half sacks in the playoffs for the Packers. But he wasn't that dominant player that Charles Woodson was for the Packers. And I think that is the factor. If he were the unquestioned leader of that Packers defense, a Packers defense that was known as one of those great defenses, I think that he's got a possible case. He was a really good player on some really good teams that never got over the hump. And in the end, he's known for what he did in Chicago and Carolina. He had some couple of good years at near the end in Green Bay, but he's not a Packers Hall of Famer in my view. I would say that he is perhaps, you know, a Packer Hall of Famer. I think you, you could you could certainly argue that. But does he belong on the, the ring of honor? And and does he go in, you know, specifically as a Packer, you know, or or really where his career tipped while he was playing in Green Bay? No, I wouldn't say that at all. I think he was a freak of nature. And, and at his age, he was extremely athletic for having been in the league that long. And I know there are multiple you know, videos and things like that of his interception. He's running away from players, things like that. I mean, he was really talented, but no, he not a, not a uh, ring of honor or his career didn't tip uh, as a Packer. We're glad to certainly have had him on our team and he was a major contributor, but not well, to make up his hall of fame. Let's just think about it a different way. If he had sort of one of these signature edge rusher seasons with 18, 19, 20 sacks, yes. and he you know dominates in the playoffs, sort of like a Reggie white. I think this is an entirely different discussion. He was a great player, but not a world beating player who destroyed opposing offenses. And that's yeah. the real difference. With the Pro Football Hall of Fame, players go in, you know, with their bust. They are just the player. It's up to the teams, the individual teams, to decide what kind of honors to give. So Green Bay, really, they've got 28 names already up in that ring of honor. But now we're at the point where we're going to have seven players that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that did play for the Packers. Is there some other honorific that these seven names, because I don't think even all uh, of the other five, I think Jan Stenrud is the only one in the Packers Hall of Fame. Of those seven guys now, 
is there something that the Packer Hall of Fame could or should do or inside Lambeau Field that they can say, hey, we also have, in addition to 28 Hall of Famers, we have these other seven guys that did get to play in Green Bay. John, you know what you should do? You should have a flag for that for the lot one tailgate. You could be the honorific yes. for all of the Ooh. Packers players who are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame but are not in the Ring of Honor. Not in the Ring of Honor. That's right. That's kind of my thing, right? To find uh, someone who needs to be in the Hall of Fame or needs some type of honor. and Let's give them a push, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in 2014, Julius Peppers came to Green Bay as a free agent, albeit late in his career. But that's the next thing on the agenda is free agency who out there on the Packers spot unrestricted are we worried about losing who do we need to keep what's on the horizon Jeff what kind of information you got for us there free agency is a is a strange animal right so you you've got players you sort of want to jettison that you're maybe want to get rid of and then you want players that you want to sign so some notable Packer free agents unrestricted free agents uh Yash Nyman Keyshawn Nixon Darnell Savage, Jonathan Ford, A.J. Dillon, Kyler Davis, maybe, you know, from tight end standpoint, um, DeGuara, Josiah DeGuara is another one. So we got, you know, tight ends. Are we going to sign these guys? Not huge cap hits, but, in you know, for me, it's do we hang on A.J. Dillon? And then who, oh, and Jonathan Owens as well, you know. So there's a number of um, defensive backs, strong safety defensive backs, and some offensive players, what are the Packers going to do? N none of them really have a huge cap hit, but who do we sign? Who do we not sign? Do we bring back Dylan? right? The Thunder and Lightning, are they going to be there? Or did he sort of play himself out of being re-signed, certainly by the Packers, by being kind of pedestrian um, before he got hurt? Let's look at Dylan's career numbers for Green Bay. 597 rushes, 2,428 rushing yards. That's not nothing as far as a running back is concerned. 16 rushing touchdowns. He also had 763 receiving yards and two receiving touchdowns. A.J. Dillon seems like the perfect type of squad player that if you can get him back for cheap, he certainly has the right spirit as a Packer. People certainly think of it as, as a Packer. I think people would be happy if he's back, but if he's not back, it's not a fatal decision. And he's really the the biggest name other than Keyshawn Nixon within that group. And I think that's the real question is how much of a premium is Keyshawn Nixon going to command because of the position that he plays and because he does have two consecutive first team all pros for special teams. And is there going to be some team that sort of looks at him and says, we can take advantage of that. We can put a flyer on him for I don't know, let's say six, eight, 10 million and take advantage of his special teams abilities and his, his ability to play slot corner or something along those lines. That's the person that I think that we're most likely to lose, not because we want to lose him, but because he may be priced out. Yeah, I agree on the, on the pricing there. The other thing to remember right now is Green Bay is only about $8 million under the cap. They don't have a lot of room to work with, but there are some projected moves that can happen to get Green Bay well under the salary cap. Yeah, the big one is obviously David Bakhtiari. So David Bakhtiari is owed $21.5 million in cash for the upcoming season. And if we make a pre-June 1st cut of Bakhtiari, first of all, we get that $21.5 million off of our, our what we have to pay for next year. 
We also saved $20.9 million in cap. We'll take a $19 million dead cap hit, but I just don't think with somebody that age and that injury history, you can take any sort of risk keeping him on your team another year. That's obviously the easiest way to, to make up $20 million in cap space. So speaking of cap space, so then the next couple highest cap hits are Kenny Clark and Jair Alexander. What do you do with them? I believe, Jeff, both of those contracts can be restructured to lower the cap hit and kind of kick that can down the road. And the other thing about Jair is that if you were to trade him, we would actually lose three and a half million in cap space. And Jair, for a cornerback, for his position, he's only owed 16 million in cash next year. For a premier cornerback, that's actually a pretty good deal. So I don't, and he certainly, when he is hurt, when he is not injured, he is performing at a very high level. And I think that that's, that's a big one that you're not going to be able to do anything about. You want Jair involved in your team. You want him to have a leadership role. And we're going to see Jair on the Packers next year. The one other player where there's a big potential savings is Devondre Campbell. And Devondre Campbell is owed $11 million in cash for the 2024 season. And if we designate him as a post-June 1st cut, we can save $10.6 million on our cap next year. And I think given the aid by Devondre Campbell, that's one that seems almost certain to happen as well. Age combined with a defensive coordinator who presumably is moving us to a 4-3 defense. It's unfortunate Devondre is probably going to be the odd man out there. He had a career resurgence in Green Bay. And, you know, his wife, uh, Nicole, is a presence in the Lot 1 tailgate party. She is kind of responsible for bringing a lot of the player wives and girlfriends to come by us and, and hang out at our party as well. So, unfortunately, if they leave town, we'll see what happens with that dynamic and wish them the best. But, gosh, I would love to, just from a personal perspective, would like to keep them in town from a business perspective. It just does not look like it's going to happen. So then that brings us to Aaron Jones, right? So he's got a pretty big cap hit, but I think based on what he was able to do to really rally this team going into the playoffs and sort of a, I don't know, security blanket, if you will, or certainly a calming presence for Jordan Love, you, you, you have to bring him back, right? Yeah, there's no, there's and, no way. And, and, he, <laughs> and, he's, and, he's not, and he's not that expensive either. I mean, he's, he's $12 million in cash for the next season. For somebody who's a playmaker for your offense, a difference maker for your offense, that's not an enormous amount of money. I don't think you screw around with anything other than potentially restructuring it to spread out the dollars and, and give yourself more ability. But Jones is not an expensive player in the context of the modern NFL. The primary goal of a general manager is to determine when you've gotten the most out of a player that you can, like they're over that hill that the, the law of diminishing returns is going to come into play and you kind of cut your losses. And, and I totally get that philosophy on how to run the team. Aaron Jones, however, is one player that I look at that they just need to ride him until he is dead. Literally <laughs> just drive that, drive it into the ground, ride that horse until you cannot go any further and he's not going to be of any use of anyone else just because of the dynamic that he puts on this team and the role that he has been playing. And it is incredible. The plays that he puts together, I, you know, don't say, Hey, let's move him, get, get something back. And no, let him stay as long as you can still have something in the tank for him to go. So I agree with you, John, the other two players though, that are potentially Interesting in this regard are Kenny Clark, who has $17 million in cash coming into him next year, 
and Preston Smith at over 12 million in cash coming to him next year. Both of those players are getting up in age. And this is where the general manager really makes his money is deciding on, is this player starting to be on the downward curve? Are they going to be worth the money that you're going to pay them? And if they're not, you've got to cut losses no matter what the dead cap hit is. But not just the downward curve in Preston Smith's case, it's the upward curve of the other players. When you look at J.J. Anigbari and Lucas Van Ness coming up, yeah. and you throw Rashawn Gary in there, does Preston Smith continue to fit at his price tag in that position? Well, and then you wonder what happened to Gary, and you know, as the, as the year you know, kind of in the playoffs and things like that, he was really quiet. Now, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, there was an injury or something. Who knows? But hopefully he kind of gets that fire back and he really performs to the level that he's being paid as a as a real premier edge rusher. Right. Although most of that payment was in a bonus payment, his cash cost for next season is only $9 million. So because of his recent extension, there's zero chance that we're going to do anything as far as Gary is concerned, because he's not really that much additional cost for us. He clearly is capable of performing at a really high level. And we have to hope that he consistently does that next year, but no matter what, he's a top level edge rusher that it certainly commands the salary that he's going to be paid next year. And we certainly agreed that the talent level is on this Packer defense. They just need the right guidance. And ideally, and, you know, oh gosh, another new face at defensive coordinator. Well, it's got to, you know, we got to get something different in there to get it to work. Looking forward to see what this is going to do to the Packer defense as well. Well, and somebody that that is comes as advertised is who's very aggressive, right? And so for these defensive backs and it's sort of the, the defensive back whisperer or whatever, that it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And again, you've got, you've got two two ways to look at it, right? Okay. Here's another defensive coordinator trying to get this guy in here, learn a different system, you know, if we're switching from three, four to four, three and things like that, or is it enough of a, you know, a personality of, of just energy, a shot in the arm that, okay, our offense is gelling and moving really in the direction we want it to. Now, if we can just, just get the defense to perform at a higher level. And, and I think they're just going to be aggressive by all accounts right so then are there going to be mistakes so it's it's almost like next year's defense might be the opposite of this year's offense so you're not really sure what you're getting early on because there's there's going to be changes and, and maybe some new players or things like that but then maybe they'll gel as the year goes on who knows well i think jeff that also points to what we're potentially doing with those free agents because darnell mm -hmm. savage has certainly been disappointing but how much of that has potentially been scheme and do they think maybe yeah. you know darnell savage is only going to be 27 at the beginning of next season yeah. Keyshawn nixon's also only going to be 27 at the beginning of next season do you look at those two guys and maybe jonathan owens and say well if we bring some of those guys back we're going to be buying low. We won't have to use as much draft capital on those positions necessarily. We can make those guys better and draft some additional pieces that can transform us into something as a potentially an elite unit. And then that makes the draft even that much more sort of wide open, right? So then where do they draft? And obviously that, you know, stay tuned. We'll, we'll discuss that. But I, I think that really opens up some other interesting possibilities then in the draft as well. As we look ahead, for the GBC podcast, probably a little less frequency of our shows, but we'll be 
back in a month to talk more about free agency. In April, we'll have the pre-draft and the post-draft. In May, we're looking ahead to the new league schedule, and we'll get to pick our road game for next year. I'm very excited about that one. And then we'll look ahead to the following season and figure out where we go from there. Until then, gentlemen, final thoughts? The NFL year is done. We've got a new year beginning. Happy New Year. It should be a great year upcoming for the Packers. My intent is to not get COVID next fall when we go wherever we go on our road trip. So I, I, I very right. much uh, intend to go and I'm looking forward to that. We're going we're gonna to drag you kicking and screaming, even if you have an IV in or whatever the case may be, <laughs> Jeff, you're going on the road trip. All, All right, right, if you're watching us... <laughs> If you're watching us on YouTube, please hit subscribe, leave a comment, find the GBC podcast at Green Bay Chat, all one word, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and on Facebook at the GBC podcast, Green Bay Chat, and may you fully appreciate the magnitude of your impending good fortune. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Good night.